0: The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Well, let's continue in our time together as we open up God's Word. We are continuing in our year-long teaching series through the Gospel of Matthew. And within this series, we find ourselves in the the parable series. And so Jesus spoke in parables. He was a great storyteller. And that's what we see in his parables. He uses these stories, these parables, to to reveal the kingdom and to, to expose a single or just a couple truths about how God works. And so today we go to Matthew 13, just a few verses, and, and starting in verse 31. Matthew 13:31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. I'm just going to cover these two very brief parables this morning. The purpose of these parables was to represent the kingdom of God and to show us how the gospel works in our lives and how it works in our world. And if we've ever wondered, God, how are you working? What are you doing? How does this make sense of what you're doing in my world? His his purpose in showing us these parables is to show us how his kingdom works. They were designed to showcase a central truth that should be evident right away as we read these parables. They show us what God has done, what he's doing, and what he will do as he reigns over all of creation and all of the universe in perfect love and truth. So what do we learn about the kingdom of God in just these couple parables. What do we learn about God's active work in your life and in the lives of of people around us and in creation around us? Two parables, two really simple points. First, the first parable teaches us that incredible results come from unimpressive beginnings. The mustard seed, you sow the seed and it grows and it becomes this enormous tree and the birds come and nest in this tree. It becomes a home for so many, a tiny seed and it grows bigger and bigger and bigger. And as you look at this, you say, wow, all of this came from such a little seed. That's the, that's the simple, basic thing we are to see from this. The second parable teaches us the, that the, incons- the inconspicuous and hidden ways by which God works. Yeast works its way into the bread. You don't see it. You use very little of it. And it works its way all the way through. And it rises and it yields so much. It works into every little pocket and every little fold of the dough, and it yields a ton of bread, enough in this story to feed a hundred people, this one woman making bread and kneading through the yeast into the bread, yielding this huge feast for people. That's it. And I have like 30 more minutes, and that's what these parables are about. And that's what parables do sometimes, as we read them, like we're not supposed to in, in, in certain literature and certain parables like this, we're not supposed to look at the Greek words. We're not supposed to analyze uh, everything that it could be saying. Jesus is meant to teach us this, and we are to see evidently what is this about. Oh, well, how does the kingdom work? Well, God works in hidden, often hidden ways, inconspicuous ways, and God work. He does amazing things and yields amazing results from things that seem, at the time, as very unimpressive very small and I bet just with those two points we could run for so long we could probably fill 30 minutes talking about how does this work out in our life and that's exactly what I intend to do these parables have to do with the vast extent of God's kingdom and his patience and how often how his, his obscure ways of working in creation in our hearts yield amazing results And often we don't know what God is doing, we don't see what He is doing, and He takes little things and and He makes it great. And it usually surprises us, it usually humbles us, it usually is very surprising. Anything, anything, almost anything in life that truly matters will require you to do tiny, small, and mostly overlooked things over a long period of time with God. Most of the things, almost everything that God is calling you to do are going to be tiny, small, mostly overlooked things over a very long period of time with God. That's what he calls us to, and that's how the kingdom works. But outside of the Bible, this is there's a very different story that, that is being told, isn't there? The American church seems to be just as susceptible as the rest of the culture is to the allure of things being done fast and famous and large. Let's do this really big and do it really fast and make it really widespread. And that's how we know if it's successful, that's how we know if it's worthwhile, if it's huge. Sociologist George Ritzer calls this phenomenon the McDonaldization process, the McDonaldization process. You can probably gather he's kind of talking about a parable even in that. Something is deemed successful if it's done on a large scale, it's done really quick, and it's far-reaching. It doesn't have to be good for you, it doesn't have to be good for the community, because what is good and how we define what is good and what is right Is is it great? Is it far-reaching? Is it fast? Does it cover a lot of ground? What is large? What's famous? What's fast? You know, we want want high-speed internet. We want rapid reward credit cards. We want fast food and instant replay. Everything is moving so fast. Slow down. God is saying, that's not how I work. I will often work. The kingdom works in very patient and slow and repetitive things it calls us to return to the same place every single day doing the same thing rehearsing the same exact story you may not realize how shaped you are by the cultural values of our time and jesus confronts our desire to define greatness and success as a christian by how large and famous and fast it is and he does that with these two parables he is confronting at the time and even at that time and in our time today, he's confronting this idea that, uh, that in order for God to be doing something great in our life, in order to be seen as a success, as a follower of Jesus, it must be evident. It must be great. It must be, we must change very quickly. We must be the spiritual person that we hope to be at every moment. And if we fail in that, then, then we are a failure, or God is a failure, and things aren't happening the way we had hoped. The parables make their point, and this is how God works. But then what? Here, here are just a few implications. That's my introduction, just talking about these are the two parables. You could leave now, and you, you have everything you need. But I want to draw out some implications for, well, how does this work in our life? What should we learn? Well, first thing is this. When it comes to, when it comes to spiritual growth, God is a farmer, not a microwave mentioned that a little bit last week, and in fact, all through these parables, we've been talking about how the kingdom of God is much more like farming than it is like, like a microwave or like, like dynamite that comes in and just changes you instantly, and you're never the same, and, and everything in your life is better. But God is like a farmer, plants a seed in our hearts, and it grows, and it changes us, and it breaks the soil from underneath and from, from within. And while we live in a microwave culture, we are never called to a microwave mindset of spiritual growth. Almost anything in life that truly matters will require you to do small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time with God. These are the kingdom priorities. The kingdom priorities. If we could sum up, God, what what do you value? What are the priorities? What do you want to do in my life? It's pretty simple. Jesus actually, he, he, he tells us a few times. He says, well, here are the kingdom priorities, to love God and to love others. Everything is summed up. Everything is summed up in these two principles. Matthew 22, verse 37, And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Everything that God has revealed depends on these two things. They hang on these. If we could summarize all that God desires for you, it is for you to love God and and for you to love others. Most people believe that when you become a Christian, loving God and loving others ought to come easily. Have you ever gotten down on yourself or gotten down on somebody else? I should be further along than I am in my sanctification. I'm a Christian, I should know how to love God. I should know how to love others. Have you ever accused somebody who was lacking in love for God or love for others and said, but you're a Christian. You should love God and you should love others. And so we are telling people, "You you need to get in that microwave and you need to be changed right now. You need to embrace those kingdom priorities to love God and love others and you need to change right away. And so we feel shame about our own life when we are weak in our faith, when we're lacking in our sanctification, when we're not growing as fast as we ought to. I think Jesus wants to confront that. He doesn't want to excuse our sin or our disobedience, but he wants to confront us to how the kingdom works. It's like farming. It's not like a microwave. Let's look at some of these, and, and you just tell me, as we look through the list of these things, how you could see that patience is really required, that it actually happens quite slowly. Let's just look at love for God. It's main priority for for what it means to be a Christian, loving God. Spiritual growth and faith, hope and love. These things take a long time. What about knowledge of and surrender to the teachings of scripture? As you learn about what the Bible says, so you trust in God, and you, let's say you trust in Jesus, you believe he died for your sins, but you come to the Bible and you're reading things that feel like it this, the first time you've read them, every single time you read them. It takes a long time to have a knowledge of God's word and then have the opportunity to surrender to God's word. It'll take a lifetime. Someone has said that the, the Bible is simple enough for a child to understand its basic principles, but complex enough for a biblical scholar to spend his or her entire life trying to figure out. What about growing in obedience? Just learning how to be an obedient follower of Jesus takes time. Walking in gentleness and peace, patience, kindness, and self control. I mean, these are the fruits of the Spirit. How do you how you how you manifest the fruit of the Spirit? Are you there yet? Are you there, there perfectly? You realize, yeah, I'm not there. It takes a long time. What about facing addictions and idolatries and sins with the gospel? Teaching your heart and your mind how the gospel relates to your sins of, 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 of addiction. Or idolatries, or, or things, that, things that you go to instead of God to find comfort. What about learning contentment in Jesus, whether you have a little bit or a lot? Hey, I'm still trying to learn that. I'm still trying to figure that out waiting for the, coming of, the second coming of Christ and the fulfillment of all of his promises. So do you see like, this pursuit of loving God, the most important thing that we are called to as followers, takes a long time. We're constantly learning. I hope you see that in you. It doesn't mean that just because you're struggling in these areas that, that maybe you don't belong to Christ, that you're not in Christ, that you're not saved. Maybe it doesn't mean that he doesn't love you and that the kingdom is not working in you. We misunderstand how God works. We realize that God is patient and it takes a long time for the fruit of the gospel to grow into our life, to bear fruit, and to change us completely. So we talk about love for God. What about loving others? I don't know what to tell you. I don't have enough slides to, for, you know, for today to talk about how, how we need to be patient. What about finding true friendship? So God has called you into meaningful friendship with others, meaningful relationship with others. How are you doing on that? You may say, it's hard. It's hard to find true friendship, people that I can actually bear my soul to, where I can confess my sins to. Learning how to forgive. Have you perfected that yet? How are you doing? You're a Christian. God says, forgive. How are you doing? You may say, I have a hard time with that. Learning how to pursue reconciliation when there's enmity with, between you and somebody else that may have hurt you or you've hurt someone. Coming to our senses regarding the wrongs that you've done to others. I mean, just maturing in your relationships where you realize, maybe I am difficult for people, maybe I am hard for people, maybe I hurt people and I don't even know it. It's a lifelong pursuit. Parenting. Just a single word I put up there. Parenting. <laughs> Loving others. Do you know children are others? Children are other people. Children are your neighbors, they're actually your closest neighbors. Loving them, it takes a long time. Patience, as it takes long. Well, you may be a Christian and a very impatient parent, thriving in marriage. There is no context that is more descriptive uh, that God uses in scripture to describe his love for the church as the love of a husband to his wife. How are you doing, husbands, in loving your wives? How are you doing wives in honoring your husbands? What about remaining single faithfully and joyfully? See, it's one thing to remain single, but it's yet another to remain single in a way that is honoring to God and faithful to what He has called us to. Creating integrity in relationship of work, relationships and in our jobs. So you see, in loving God's our two main priorities of the kingdom are to love God and love others. And I think I've made my case here to show us that, wow, we are not there. We are growing in that at different degrees. The kingdom, of God's work is slow and we have a long way to go. And everything that Jesus tells us, and he's been telling us in his gospel and leading up in, in these parables, is lead us to believe that the planting of the gospel in our hearts that, is, that, that secures us in the love of the Father and the harvesting of the fruit of the gospel don't happen at the same time. He wants us to understand that as we follow Jesus, that the planting and the harvesting don't happen all at once. And the gospel takes root in our hearts and it's meant to change us as we apply it, as we yield to it, as we continue to grow in our knowledge and submission to God's word. He changes us from one degree of his grace to another. We turn on the TV and we ask, you know, we do this often, maybe you do too. We, we look at one another and we say, is there anything good on? Or is there anything new that just came out? You see, we're always looking for, what's What's new? What's happening that hasn't happened before? And sometimes we approach the Bible in the same way. We approach the kingdom in that same way. What can I read that I haven't read yet? As if we're simply looking to just transfer information, that that's the problem in our sanctification, is that we don't know the right information, or maybe we haven't read that right passage yet. And so we look at, we look at it and say, what, what's fresh? What's new? But God's kingdom work is not like that. It's, it's a much different approach. It's a daily orienting your life toward a moment-by-moment relationship with God, and that's what brings glory to Him. It is a daily reorienting your life of coming to Him and having this apprenticeship and, and relationship with Him where you're trusting in His work, applying that to every situation, seeing how that overflows into every pocket of your life. It's letting God do His steady, daily, habitual work in your heart that brings glory to him. It isn't being changed fast and being famous and being everything that you promised you would be. And so we see these parables show us this, this approach to growth that is much different from the approach to greatness and growth and success in the world. It isn't about reaching that bottom line of proficiency. It is about the steady obedience of letting God do his work in our life letting the kingdom pierce into every area of our heart. But here's a second thing that we can learn from this as we, as we build on that. When evaluating God's leading in your life, you can't go by simply asking what works. You see, this is what happens in, in, in the world. What works? What's, what's practical? What is evident? What, what do I see by sight that tells me that something is, is growing? The amazing things have happened in the last 100 years. Just look at 100 years in the West, in the Western culture what has happened, amazing things. We have, we have modern science, technology, and medicine, and all of these three things put together, it, it would seem that with where we are with technology and science and medicine, that nothing ever should go bad. Isn't that true? I mean, it seems like we should be beyond evil by now. We should be beyond the need for anything, what we could accomplish as human beings. Just with our natural intellect and the advancement of technology and medicine, there should be no evil or hurt at all. And it seems like sometimes it's the opposite. We should be so much better as people. We should know how to worship God rightly, and we should learn, know how to love one, another, one another's rightly. But we painfully realize that that social advancement is even as, as good as we get socially. It doesn't necessarily mean that people are better in their ability to understand God or each other. We don't know how the kingdom works, but Jesus uses these parables to show us a little bit of how it works. He works, he works secretly. He works slowly, and it always surprises us. The kingdom always surprises us. When I recognize that God's working, I'm never compelled to say, oh, that's exactly what I thought he would do. <laughs> when you see God working, do you ever say, oh, that's exactly what I thought you would do? It's quite the opposite. When I, see God, when I see evidence of God's sovereign work in my life, what I feel compelled to say is, God, once again, you remind me that you're not like me. Once again, you remind me that you're doing something that I am often completely unaware of. Once again, you remind me that you're smarter than me, that you're better than me, and that you shouldn't listen to me. You shouldn't listen to my wisdom. You shouldn't listen to my way of, of how, I things, how I think things should go, because if you listened to me, it would be an utter mess. The kingdom is always surprising. We look at the, we look at the kingdom and its imp- unimpressive beginnings, like a mustard seed, and we would say, well, what could this do? We look at this all this flour and we say, well how could this feed? How could we multiply this to feed 100 people? And we 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 don't see this invisible work of God. We don't see his plan because our eyes are not on it. God's ways are truly inconspicuous. They're not meaning they're not clearly obvious when when he's working. And I bet if you're honest, you would admit that you often feel like God's failing you in your life. You often feel that, well God if you're working, you're not doing a great job. But we only see the evidence of God's work when, when we see the fruit of it, when we, see, when we see that he was working that whole time, when we see the fruit of all that he has been doing. And we say, "How oh God, you were, you were working in this. You were in my life, you were in my heart, you were in the life of people around me. You were orchestrating your plan and now I see the outcome of it and it's good. And I'm humbled and I'm surprised. This woman in the parable takes three measures of flour and that's enough to feed about 100 people, as mentioned. This is a ridiculous amount of bread for one woman to be cooking in her little humble you know, brick oven kitchen. Feeding 100 people. She works the leaven into the flour. She needs it until it's all leavened. And when it's all leavened, you say, well, look at that. It really worked. Look at that. We didn't think you could do it, but look at how it worked itself out. You know, and this comes in part of the, the whole story of God's, of the gospel of Matthew, and the whole story that Matthew is trying to communicate to his readers, to us. How does the story of Matthew begin? Well, it's, The gospel starts with the story of Christmas. Christmas in July. Small beginnings leading to an unimaginable expansion. Small beginnings leading to an unimaginable expansion expansion, a small baby from a poor family born in a manger with no accolade and no one around except some dirty shepherds that no one, no one really cares about. That's how, that's how it begins. That's how the story begins. A baby born in a manger amid sheep and cattle. As exiles, Jesus and his family settle in a town called, called Nazareth, with, which we know from the Gospels, people would say, well, what good can come from this place? It has a reputation kind of like Yuma, if you, you think about that. <laughs> Sorry. Well, you started at the bottom, now you're here. Oh. <laughs> Start, you know, people said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Because this reputation is like, well, this is unimpressive. You're telling me that the, that the world was created in, through, by, and for Our Messiah we've been waiting for and he's coming from this unimpressive town this doesn't fit our narrative it doesn't fit this cultural and social narrative that we that we believe Jesus gathers when he starts his ministry he gathers a small group of followers and one day a day would come when this group of unimpressive men empowered by the Spirit of God would turn the world upside down so much so that we're talking about it today thousands of years later unimpressive we are do you realize that we are the ends of the earth When we talk about the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth, like we're the ends of the, like America is not the center of the kingdom. We're the ends of the earth. What does it mean that the kingdom would grow and the birds would make their nests and and leaven would work its way through a lot of flour and feed a lot of people? Well, here's what that means. Jesus was a first century Jewish, never married, physically unimpressive and sometimes homeless Middle Eastern carpenter who never spoke a single word of English. Jesus looked a lot like our, what, we would, what we would view as our enemies rather than us. And he conquered death and evil. And the world rests on his shoulders. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to this man who is so unimpressive. Let's admit that that's a little unexpected. Can we just admit that? That's a little unexpected. Probably the number one question that Christians in America ask when trying to decide some of the most important, important decisions of their life is this question, what works? What's proven? What's obvious? What can I trust? What is visible for me? What's tangible? And I'm not speaking against like wisdom and counsel, seeking counsel and learning from people's processes. These are all very good and biblical things. But it's possible that the question what works replaces what's faithful, what's obedient, What's honest? What's good? What has God called me to? Most people look at Jesus and say, this isn't going to work. And that's, that's why most deserted him. That's why almost everyone deserted Jesus. That's why they killed him, because he claimed to do things and be the person, and they said, well, this is unimpressive. You don't fit our idea of how things should work. How is this going to work? This homeless, unimpressively You know, unimpressive man who who was just hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. This isn't what we had in mind. And we are part of this same kingdom that the the disciples proclaimed so long ago. That a kingdom is far-reaching and is continuing to expand and God is working and he's working in your life. He's working in my life, but he's not working in the way that you and I would imagine. He's not working in the way to, to show us, here's what works. He's not working in the same way that our culture pursues greatness and success. God works in inconspicuous ways for at least one reason that we know of, and that is to make fun of people who think they have it all together. <laughs> this, we don't, he doesn't tell us a lot. God, why do you work that way? I just like making fun of people who think they have it all together. Look, I'm going to I'm gonna show you from the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it was written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why does God use unimpressive things to make fun of people who say they've got it all together? It's as if for every person that says, I have my stuff together, and for that reason, God should love me. For every person that says that, he goes to 10 people who don't have that and and he pours out their grace on them. Just to shame, just to disrupt the narrative of our culture that says success and greatness is based on what you have and what you do and what your appearance is. He turns around and showers people with grace that are complete failures just to despise those who think they're something. It's unexpected that the grace of God would come to to you. It's unexpected that the grace of God would come to me or any of us. That's the definition of grace. It's unmerited. It's unexpected. It's undeserving. If we say, it makes sense that God would work that way in my life, then then you might not understand the grace of God. If you feel in your heart, well, of course God chose me. I make good decisions and I, I try to do my best. Then you don't understand how the kingdom works. We want God's work in us to be large and famous and fast, but the only thing about us that is large and famous and fast is our brokenness. It's our sin. And sometimes we're surprised, we ought to be surprised by how fast and famous and large we can be in our sin. That's the only thing great about us, is our sin. What did your pastor talk about on Sunday? He said I wasn't very special. And it's true, you're not very special. (laughs) I'm not very special who among you who among you could could look could stand before Christ with any merit of your own but because you're in Christ he becomes our wisdom he becomes our he becomes our righteousness he becomes our sanctification he becomes our redemption so the means of greatness are so different from our means of greatness the road is always Christ it's not ourselves He takes our brokenness, he becomes our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, so that anyone who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Have you ever noticed Jesus' strategy for networking the gospel in Matthew? How Jesus grows his ministry? I mean, Jesus seems so intent on organizing his schedule around unnamed people and events. He makes personal visits to people whose names we never know. He heals people of sicknesses. He spends time with hundreds in a crowd, but he, but he withdraws from the crowd. Every time he's in a crowd, he withdraws from the crowd just to go spend time with just a few insignificant people. He isn't knocking on the governor's door to get the ear of the governor or networking with spiritual leaders. If anything, what he's doing with people of power, he's giving every reason for them to not platform him. In the world's eyes, he was a foolish businessman, a careless politician, an unenergetic leader without a plan. And Jesus' idea of doing great things for God meant a daily routine of prayer and ministry that accentuated a greatness of a different kind. A greatness that was defined by a habitual, steady devotion to God and a ministry, a ministry of service. And lastly, let's look at what we can learn from these parables. We must operate from a position of patient trust in God. You see, our our inability to wait on God points to our lack of faith in God's work, but maybe more so it points to a condition of our heart that has been shaped by what the world loves rather than what God loves. The world loves the large and the famous and fast. But hear this, in these parables, Jesus is inviting us to be anchored, not in appearances, but in the deep still waters of a remarkably patient yet radically present God. What can we learn from this parable, these parables, is that God is remarkably patient and yet he is radically present and radically working in our lives and the appearance of God's lack of work in our life or the misunderstanding of his lack of work does not mean his lack of care or his lack of presence and his lack of work in our life. When we get caught up in this frantic demand of the world for immediate results and impressive appearances rather than on patient trust in God, three things will creep in. What will creep into our life is a celebrity mindset, a consumerism attitude, and immediate gratification. Celebrity mindset, what is that? Celebrity mindset is this fear of of obscurity, a fear of of not being recognized or known, a fear of of not leaving our mark on, on the world, a fear, what if no one knows me or knows what I'm doing? What if no one recognizes the good that I do? And this causes us to do whatever we need to do. Our motivation in all that we do is for people to like us and to know us and to admire us and to praise us. Consumerism. Consumerism creeps in when we begin to treat things and people simply as a means to our desired end rather than enjoying things and people for how God intended us to enjoy them in a loving way. See, relationships and activities become merely things that we use rather than things that we enjoy. What about immediate gratification? Well, we we fail to have our perspective on the, the radically patient and, and radically presence of God, rad- radically presence of God, we have immediate gratification. We replace healthy processes for impulse reaction. We just, we act. We do things that we think will work in the time. And we, by doing that, we, we forfeit God's process, his healthy process of, of good spiritual growth. And uh, the tendency to get discouraged and to throw out God's processes creeps into our thinking. I know you've been there and I've been there countless times. We tend to want results right away. When we're making dinner some evenings, and, and if we're just coming to the, 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 the kitchen to make this meal and we didn't realize it, but part of the instructions in the recipe says to marinate it for 30 minutes, we say, Well, we're not having that for dinner tonight. If something has to marinate for any amount of time, we say, Well, wh- what can we do that doesn't have to be marinated? We we want it right away. And isn't that a metaphor for just the Christian growth that we feel so much? We want the flavor. We want the good taste, but we won't want to soak. We don't want to marinate in God's Word. We don't want relationship. We just want what the relationship would give. We want companionship, but we don't want the work required to reconcile, to love, to forgive, to pursue. And ultimately, we don't want to be changed by God. We just want a good life that He has promised for us. We want to look and sound and behave in ways that will make people like us and make us feel better about ourselves. So you see, a lot, can be, a lot can be taken from these two small parables. If all this is true, then, then courage is required. Patience is, is necessary. Because Jesus' categories for growth and success are not the world's categories. They sh- they're shocking to most of us. And grace is required. We need to believe that, that obscurity and greatness are not opposites. That success and obscurity are not opposites. That success and patience are not opposites. This is how God works. And so citizens of God's kingdom and followers of Jesus give their time to small, mostly looked tasks over long periods of time with no accolade. And ask yourself, ask yourself this question, when when did I begin to define greatness from the vantage point of what I do or what I have rather than the vantage point of Jesus' grace in my life? When did I begin to think that I was important and a success and something based on what I've accomplished, rather than what God has accomplished in me, rather than the grace of God in my life, forgiving me continually on a daily basis, giving me courage, why am I not okay being patient with letting God work? The parable, again, reminds us of God's transformation, that it comes slowly, and in a world where fast food and rapid rewards and instant replay reign supreme, this lesson is so difficult. You've heard the joke before, pray for anything but patience, because you don't want to see how God gives it to you. We don't have to be patient for the pace. We don't, we don't have the patience for the pace of patience. Do you know what I mean? We don't have, we're not patient enough to be patient because it takes so long. <laughs> Think about that for a while. <laughs> because we have the wrong goal. We have the wrong goal. We, we have a goal. We have a mission. We have a destination and God is slowing us down. And his, his, his timeline slows us down because we have a thing that we need to get to. We have a thing that we want to accomplish. We have, a, we have an identity that we want to grow in. We want to be a certain kind of person, a certain kind of Christian. And our goal is not God's goal. Our goal is not Jesus. But Jesus works deliberately in our heart to convict us of our sins and our goals and our ambitions that are not rooted in him. It, it, he, he confronts our desire for celebrity status He he confronts our fear of man that is always worried about about what people think of us. And he he calls us to have a relentless pursuit of Jesus, a focus on him, eyes fixed on him. Consider this illustration that I read uh, that someone shared in one of my favorite books. Walk. He says, walk, we say to my toddler son, who wants to run with his buddies beside the public pool. I tell him to slow down, not because I want him to miss his mark, but exactly because slowness is his best shot of actually hitting it. Walk. Don't run. Not because I don't want you to have fun, because slowness is the best way of getting there safely and how you're supposed to. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. Small, seemingly insignificant but when it is grown it's larger than all the garden plants and it provides a place for for countless of people to come and to find the rest i hope we can see jesus intention in describing the kingdom this way he wishes to rescue us from a life of trying to fix it all and to know it all and to be everywhere at all the times to be fast and famous to get people to want to be you know get people to want to like us and want to be like us and by showing us the kingdom in this way jesus is calling us into a different purpose for our life where everything that we do is not to get to the next step or the next career or the next level in our spiritual growth but to behold God and be fulfilled by him and his grace in every moment which we find ourselves to desire the kingdom growth like this is to desire Jesus. Jesus says I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the way. I am the process. I'm the motivation. I'm the goal. Everything in your life needs to be driven and motivated by me, by rest in what I've done for you and like yeast he works his way into our heart and every thought and every belief and every affection every motive every action every aspiration our heart becomes this fountain of gospel growth that as it continues to grow it overflows and it hits everything in its path that's God's intention for us that we'd be so saturated with with the good news of what he has done for us and his righteousness his, his work of sanctification his redemption for us that our lives will be defined by that. We're not in a hurry to get there. We're patiently trusting in Him. So the greatest way for God's kingdom to manifest itself this week in your life could be as simple as you pausing and just praying. It could be a time where you just sit and open up the Bible in order to thoughtfully pursue community with God and to learn from Him. It could be in the smallest thing of resisting temptation that comes your way holding every thought captive repenting of sin and choosing Christ in that specific moment and you might feel like well that's not really growing as a Christian but that might be the the most powerful expression of the kingdom working in your life this week in just that moment God is working the kingdom is working in your heart when you stop and listen to him he's working when you trust in him He's working in you to bring gospel growth, and it takes a long time, and it will, but it's how the kingdom works. Spiritual growth is often slow, but his kingdom has come, and it will come, and it will be complete, so we trust in him. I invite you into that process to know how he works, to have contentment in what he is doing in your life, to trust in his work that is steady and daily, and pursue him with joy. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing to us the kingdom and how it works. That is not like a microwave. It is not like dynamite that changes us all at once. But is patient. You are incredibly patient. You are radically present. Would you reveal to us our desire for the the fast and the famous and the big, the large things? Would you give us an excitement and an expectancy for the what we would see as little things, but you would see as, as great things. Just a t- a coming to you in prayer, sitting before your feet and listening to you, asking for courage in the face of temptation, saying no to sin and trusting in Jesus, recognizing that you have given us your grace and that it's changed us and saved us and you're continuing to work in our lives. What a great thing if our life and every day was just defined by those things. What the world would see see as unimpressive acts and unimpressive activities, you see as as radical and amazing things that yield incredible results. So give us the, the pace, the patience for the pace of life that you've called us to, which is a steady trust and a steady handing over of our worries to you. Thank you for not giving up. Thank you for your promise and the hope that we have that it doesn't depend on our character. It doesn't depend on our record. But you have redeemed us. You are our wisdom, our sanctification, and our redemption. And in Christ, you've promised that, we would, that you would complete the work that you've begun in us. And so we look forward to this meal that we're about to take together, this brief meal called the Lord's Supper, that you would nourish our bodies, that you would remind us of your good news, that you would help us to slow down and to eat with one another and to eat with you. We have nowhere to go, nowhere to be, but right at your feet, hearing how you love us and the plans that you have for your creation. And we marvel at it, and we're thankful for it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.